Today on episode number 492 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Verified, How to Think Straight, Get Duped Less, and Make Better Decisions About What to Believe Online, with one of the two co-authors, Mike Caulfield. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. What an absolute joy it is to be welcoming back to the show today, Mike Caulfield. Mike is a research scientist at the University of Washington's Center for an Informed Public, where he studies the spread of online rumors and information. Creator of the SIFT methodology, he has taught thousands of teachers and students how to verify claims and sources through his workshops. His new book with co-author Sam Weinberg, Verified, How to Think Straight, Get Duped Less, and Make Better Decisions About What to Believe Online, was published by the University of Chicago Press in November of 2023. Mike's SIFT methodology is taught by hundreds of research libraries across North America, and a shorter version of SIFT instruction, developed with Google, has been taught in public libraries across the world. As an early believer in the idea of civic digital literacies, Mike's work in this area intensified in the spring of 2016. His February 2017 work, Web Literacy for Student Fact-Checkers, won the Merlot Award for Best Open Learning Resource in the ICT category. He was runner-up in the Rita Allen RTI International Misinformation Solutions Award 2018. Mike's SIFT model, a practical approach to quick source and claim investigation, encourages readers to take a minute or two to seek out basic information about sources and claims before they engage more deeply with media, and if necessary, move on to better material. It is based on research of Sam Weinberg and his own experiences helping faculty to teach critical consumption in the classroom. Mike's work has been covered by the New York Times, the Chronicle of Higher Education, NPR, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and the MIT Technology Review. Mike Caulfield, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Yeah, it's great to be here again. I have so enjoyed getting to continue to read your book and learn from you. I'm going to invite you here as we begin. Could you take us back to a simpler time? Tell us about media when you were growing up. Yeah, we actually opened the book talking about media when I was growing up, and uh, my co-author, Sam Weinberg's a little older, but really, really the same sort of environment. And the example we use is, I don't know how many of your listeners might be familiar with this, but when I when I grew up, there was a story that this kid that was in this cereal commercial named Mikey had a bunch of Pop Rocks, which was a candy that sort of crackled in your mouth, uh, and a bunch of, I think, soda. Uh, and his stomach exploded and ruptured, and, and Mikey was dead. And that's that's why you weren't seeing him in, in newer life commercials. Uh, life was the, the cereal. And, and the, the thing that we point out in the book is, is, is if you think about what you had available to you at, at that time, 
all you really had available to you was your idea of whether that was possible, right? You, you weren't, it wasn't going to be something that would come to you in the newspaper. It wasn't an internet that you could go on and look up for a fact check on, on, on Mikey. So what would you do? You, you know, uh, what we call playground cognition is you, you sit there and some people are like, well, that seems really plausible to me, right? Like it does crackle in your mouth. It, it Maybe it has an explosive quality. It had enough he had enough soda with it. Maybe we could kill someone. And we haven't seen Mikey. He hasn't been in any commercials. And, uh, you know, and someone else would say, no, that, that makes no sense at all. If that was true, why would this still be on the market? They wouldn't have, still have this on the market if, if that had happened. And so you go back and forth, right? Because you had no other, you had no other options. And the, the major point of the book throughout is that we still act that way online. We still sit there and say, well, this seems believable. I will share it or, or, well, that doesn't look believable to me. I choose to disbelieve it. We still act like we're on that playground with nothing to help us out, uh, even though we have a world of information at our fingertips. And so we're all sitting there going, is it, is this sort of story plausible? When what we really need to do is open up another tab on the browser, uh, type in a good search, get ourselves to some good, reliable information. I find it a little bit of a relief that I don't have to rely on my own ability to suss out how plausible something is. I tend to be pretty gullible, mostly gullible, not online, but with interpersonally. It's I'm pretty easy to punk, as the saying goes, <laughs> if I know you well. And I and I don't quite know that you're teasing me. I have friends who really, they'll, they'll be like, I'm so sorry. I just didn't think you'd believe me. <laughs> they're, they're not right, wanting right. to do it. But, but I do, I rest in that. The other thing that I rest in, I told you when we had a chance to talk so many years ago that I, I have tended to sit to, for too long before I got to know you and your work, thinking that somehow this had to rely on a sophisticated set of domain-specific knowledge. And what you have found in your research and Sam as well is that this stuff, this stuff is not hard. So we are going to, I'm going to invite you to show us how non-hard it is by solving a family controversy for us. Dun, okay. dun, dun. All right. So let's, let's, let's give it to me. Mike is going to be leading us through what's called SIFT and he'll, he'll talk us through it as we go. SIFT is an acronym. So we'll, we'll get to each letter, but the controversy, Mike. 75% of our family is of the mind that the toilet paper roll comes over the top. 25% are outlier who is not me. It is one of our children. I will not specify their gender or would give it away because we have 50% of each gender in our household. But 25% uh, of the household thinks that toilet paper roll comes over the bottom. I was browsing the, the news, the RSS feeds, as I am prone to do, and I saw something about a patent that the original patent is out there to show that that toilet paper roll is supposed to come over the top. And I thought, rather than me sift it, why don't I wait until I talk to Mike and let him live? But since this is not a video podcast, Mike, you're going to kind of have to talk us through the S, the I, the F, and the T. How do we resolve this as a household? Yeah. So so let's start with this. Let's start with the, the S is stop, right? And, the, and it says, you know, do I know what I'm looking at here? And that's an important distinction and one that we try to highlight in the book. A lot of people think the first question you're asking is, is this true, right? And that's that's actually not a great first question for a number of reasons that are kind of complex. But do I know what I'm looking at here is, is where a lot of people go wrong, right? So you're looking at something and 
I probably should I probably should uh, try to pull this up and make sure I can see what we're talking about here. So it's a toilet paper patent. Yeah, that's what I saw as I it was it flew by me. Toilet okay, paper so it's roll. Like some sort of picture here. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm seeing. Okay, I'm seeing something here. Just type in images. So I'm I'm bringing it up, and let me just confirm with you. It's this sort of thing. This S. Wheeler toilet paper roll, and it, it mm-hmm. looks like an old timey patent, patented December 22, 1891. Okay. Yes, and All I right. can't, I can't say that that is the identical version that I saw because I actually saw a few different, a few different ones. But yeah, yes, yeah. that's that's the gist of it. A very tech, technical, but also not <laughs> drawing. Right, right, right. And so, yeah. and so the first thing to realize is you think what you're looking at. Like, do I know what I'm looking at here? What, what you think you're looking at is a patent, like an, an older patent that shows shows this. And in this patent, you can clearly see what I'm looking at here is the, the toilet paper does come over the top, mm-hmm. right? This brings us to a really important point. So that's, that's the essence of it. But it brings us to a really important point that I think is lost in a lot of critical thinking and fact-checking stuff. We often talk about we're checking claims, we're checking facts and stuff. Usually what we're actually doing is we're checking evidence. And, and that's a it's a really important point to make. And so what you're seeing here is, I mean, in one way it's a it's potentially a fact, right? It's it's a, a picture of this toilet paper. Well, I'm gonna say toilet paper so many times in this interview. It's, <laughs> really? it's a picture of this toilet paper. <laughs> and, and, and so some people think, well, the question you're asking yourself is, is this is this real? Is this true? But what you're actually interested in is, is this good evidence for the point I wish to make, which is I am right about toilet paper being this way, mm-hmm. right? And so that's that's what you want to keep in mind as, as you go through it. Now, I don't know what source this came to you, but the th- first thing that popped up when I was looking at this was uh, something on Amazon, someone selling it it looks like as a poster, a poster of this. <laughs> this is perfect. So, I, that was not so, my source where I probably would have bought it yeah. right then and there. Yes. Uh, yeah. No. And so the question you would ask yourself with Amazon, if you didn't know what Amazon was, you, you'd do a very quick search and find out that Amazon is this is is this online sales website that sells things from a variety of, of different sellers. Uh, and then you would ask yourself, is this where I want to get my information on patents from and 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 the answer here is uh probably not you probably amazon is probably not going to be your first stop on this right uh in this case most people do know what amazon is but but if you found it on a blog if you found it through a a person who had shared it you're asking yourself is this person a historian like a a patent historian or is this person a comedian right and and uh in that case you probably if it's not somebody that has some domain knowledge then you probably want to to move to the next step. The next step would be to find uh, better coverage. In this case, what we want to do is we want to see if we can find a better source for this. So I'm going to see if I'm just here, I'm going to do a reverse image search on this, which we show people how to do and see if we can. Yeah. Okay. It comes up here. And then in the uh, reverse image search, I see a lot of things. I'm scrolling. There's a lot of people actually selling posters of this, <laughs> I imagine, because they, they're happy that perhaps they won the argument. But none of that is looking good to me. And so instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this name here, S. Wheeler, that is on this. I'm going to take this name, which is S. Wheeler, and we're going to do, it says toilet paper roll. I'm trying to type around my microphone here. <laughs> and we're going to say patent. 
And we're just going to, what we're trying to do here is we're just trying to get something better than all these people selling prints. And the first thing that comes up, actually, once I do that, once I type that in, is something from Google Patents. And this is actually the, the real U.S. patent. It has a PDF attached to it. It's from, it's from the actual patent office. And I will show it to you here. Here it is. And so that, that's right there. Not only have we kind of inadvertently used the trace, we've actually traced this to the very first source, which is the T and SIFT. And we find that, yes, this is actually a photo from the very first patent of toilet paper. And it shows the roll coming over the top. Now, there's a couple things there. The first thing is, I think what we've shown is that this evidence is what we thought it was, right? And that's what we've really demonstrated. It's not necessarily, it's true or false enters into it. But the, the main thing is we thought that this was a patent. We thought it was a patent from the, the 1890s as it, as it displayed. And we thought that it showed this. And that's, that's in fact what it is. There still is this larger question, which is, well, I think, I think uh, the person in your house that maybe disagrees could come and they could say, well, is it always for the inventor to determine the, the, the best or more practical use, right? But, but what we can say is that this is really solid evidence on your side. It's not necessarily conclusive, but it's not fabricated. It's not miscontextualized. It doesn't turn out to be a joke. It's not a... It's not something that's actually from 1973, long after toilet paper was invented. It's something that I think is, is really solid evidence. It takes a while to talk through that, right? In practice, though, what we find is that, that if you put those moves together and we're not talking, in practice, we find that it takes about 90 seconds. Mm -hmm. So, so that's, that's, that's the idea. And, and again, it doesn't necessarily show, I just want to make sure we're not, we're not being unfair to the other member of your household. It doesn't necessarily show that you are absolutely right, but it does show that this is likely that, that this is the strong evidence that you initially thought it was. You recommend to start with these non-serious things. And that's the that's the way that you lay this out in your teaching. And and why has that been so important? Yeah, so non-serious or or non-polarizing. Mm, and and yeah. part of the reason why is that. You know, there's a lot of talk about how we can't agree on 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 what is true or what is what is evidence or all of these all of these things. But it turns out when it's when it's something that's not particularly polarizing, you don't find much disagreement that this is how you would go about it, right? Like as we do this thing with the toilet paper roll, and and you say, well, okay, we traced it back, we found the original patent here. It is from the patent office. Here is the picture. It's the same picture. You don't find a lot of people saying, well, hold on a second. Who are you to say that? Right? <laughs> I mean, you might if people really dug into this issue. But people, when they're presented with something that doesn't feel threatening to their identity, immediately recognize the fairness of this way of going about treating evidence. It's, it's, not, it's not really controversial. People also recognize the fairness of this sort of thing when they are trying to make their own point, right? When they're making their point, they absolutely, they say, well, look, I found this is from the patent office. This is from the time. It's original. People understand that when they're making their own point. But it can be a little stressful when someone is is making points against something that you believe deeply. And the, 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 the risk is someone's kind of walking you through these steps and they're doing it with something that, that is starting with something that maybe you believe very deeply. And it can feel a little aggressive towards your belief. Right. 
There's a couple other things, and, and these are kind of woven throughout the book. There's a couple other things when you think through that. One, we we do start with these kind of these goofy things or these things that, that most of the people that we're we're talking to might support. Another piece of it is just the same thing I was I was doing a second ago. When you do it with something serious, one of the things I've developed over time is a, is just a phrase that, you know, if we found out, say we found out this was fake, right? The, the phrase I would probably say to you if I had found out it was fake is, I'm not saying your claim about the right way to use toilet paper is wrong, but I'm saying you can't show it with this evidence, right? This evidence is not good. And in part of what we have to do, I think, to get to a better place in society is to understand there is a separation between those two things. That that I'm I'm not I'm actually not attacking your belief. All I'm saying is if you want to demonstrate your belief to me, I need a better piece of evidence. Or conversely, if you presented something that is really strong evidence, that you've presented something that's very strong evidence. But the belief is separate from that. And, and that's one of the things that I think is is important for us to, to stress. Because what we really want to do with the book is not show that certain beliefs are wrong. What we want to do is show that if you're trying to demonstrate your beliefs, there are certain norms you have to play by. And if you're trying to see if something supports someone else's beliefs or your beliefs, you have to do these these sorts of investigations to see if they they suit those norms. Would you talk about your experience in moving from the less controversial to the more polarizing and what you have found helpful in uh, educating others about about using these moves when it really feels a lot more like it matters. It actually is going to matter yeah. to my life versus the toilet paper, which, by the way, with that person, however they want to replace the role, as long as the roles are getting replaced, I don't really care. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, so there's a couple there's a couple things there. Right. So so the first thing is that I have found in my practice that at least up through freshman year or I'm sorry, first year, first year college, that students are much less polarized about things than people think. In in fact, a lot of the students are not engaged with news at all. And only a subset of those engaged with news are are heavily politically engaged. Now there are some there are some differences. There's some ways that things like TikTok and other things are, are mobilizing people. They're they're in information environments that either have news or are news adjacent. But their awareness of the news environment, their awareness of sort of these larger elite, political elite-driven narratives, they're actually quite low, except in a couple cases. The one, one case that I found that was an exception was issues around gun control. And that that makes sense because the students are coming from an environment with lockdown, security measures, and so forth. There's a lot of attachment to positions in that area. But most most things are not. Most things are not. You know, people people often came up to me after these things and said, well, what do you say to the student who says, well, the New York Times is a communist organization. Like, how can I trust that? And I'm like, I'm just glad they know they've heard of the New York Times, you know? <laughs> I mean, so, and some students, I mean, the New York Times is probably a little better known, but if you get to something like the Washington Post or you get to something like the Atlantic, I mean, the students don't know what the Atlantic is. And so even the cable news stations, the, the students are not, the bulk of students are not highly aware of those. So this idea that students come in to us that, and they're just sort of already irretrievably polarized around these issues and so forth, it's just, it's just not, not true. The second point I'd make is, is this, that my theory of change on this is not actually sort of, uh, is not actually that we take the entire population of people coming through the educational system and we raise their skills a little bit, right? 
I mean, I hope that happens, right? I really hope that happens. But what I've actually found when I've studied how online rumor is disseminated, how misinformation is disseminated, which is is the core of my job right now, looking at how these things flow through systems, is that the real the 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 real impact is not in a little bit of facility for everybody. The the real impact is that you have a number of people within a community that kind of keep other people in check. And I, I refer to this person as the family fact checker, right? And they're not there. They're not there necessarily to convince their mom or their their uncle or their brother or whatever, a friend. Uh, they're not necessarily there to convince that person they're wrong. But when that person brings up something that's wrong in front of a bunch of other people, they're the person that says, okay, I'm going to check this really quick. And they check it really quick. And they're like, hey, John, I appreciate your passion. But I, I think on this point, yeah, I, I found this reporting more plausible. And they 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 link to it. And the, the idea there is not necessarily they're going to convince John, right? The idea there, although, is a lot of people are looking at what John said, and they really like they really like the other people looking at that, not to be pulled into it. And so they're trying to do some sort of social correction. And so this book, to me, I mean, one, I, I do think it is designed to be a book uh, used either as a sort of sidecar book in a larger class or in, in a first-year class as a textbook. Absolutely, we wrote it with students in mind. But for the broader audience, because we're trying to straddle these two markets, for the broader audience, the broader audience to me is the family fact checker. It's the person who is is finding that uh, a relative is sending them a lot of emails that they're getting that are kind of fishy. And, 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 and they're the person that has to sit there and say, no, this is a scam, right? This is a scam. Please don't do that. Or, or yes, actually, this, this, is a, this is a reasonable source. And this is a book for, for that person. And we, the hope is that these people that do this already have some method, but, fun, but have a very laborious method, a method that's not highly efficient, can get this book. And then because they're able to check these things in, in 90 seconds, in two minutes are more apt when someone, you know, advances some nonsense to be able to 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 do that efficiently and quickly and effectively. The other thing that you and Sam do so well is that we should be asking ourselves, and this is all the way back to the S and SIFT where we stop, why are we looking? What is what is our interest in this? And that's yeah. a really helpful navigator. It is something I have had to do pretty delicately. I work at a religiously affiliated university. So when a topic like abortion comes up, I always have to, before I show your video, they, they take the three hour, I always go, okay, <laughs> I have to like pre-do it. I mean, you say it perfectly well, but I just like, let's, this are, these are really strong feelings that some people have. Around. Actually, I don't know anyone who doesn't have strong feelings around that issue is like, yeah. like, let me tell you in advance the point he is about to make. He is not trying to make, he's just like, where would you go for general medical information for your children is the point that he's making. And, and so when we have those really, really strong feelings, I think it does help us stop. It's like, why am I looking? What What is it that I'm hoping to get out of this? What is What is my own vested interest? And the more we have those really visceral, visceral feelings, the more I think we do have to stop. And, and you share just that then if we have those feelings, maybe we're not using the most sophisticated parts of our brains. And therefore, maybe we don't just pass this off to other people as if it's been really sussed out well. Yeah, and there's a couple couple points there. And again, I come I come back to this 
idea. We've been talking to some in another research uh, project. We've been talking to some teachers about different different frames for this sort of work, and particularly the way that misinformation. I don't know if it was ever a great frame, but you know, it's become increasingly. It's it's developed cultural associations with I'm coming here to tell you that your beliefs are wrong, right? And that's never, for me at least, that's never been what it is. In fact, from an educational perspective, it's actually the opposite, right? One of the things, this is something that came out of a conversation with a teacher just last week. And as I was talking about this, this separation between evidence and belief, that like you can believe what you want, but you got to bring evidence to the table that's good, right? That you've checked, that you know the context of, you know where it came from. And this teacher said, you know, one of the things I think about is when I teach students to write, the thing I constantly say to students is the reason why I'm being hard on the way this is written is I want people to take you seriously. Mm. I'm not here to tell you your belief is wrong, but if you're arguing for your belief, I want people to take you seriously. And the way that you're going about this here, people aren't going to take you seriously. And that's, I, I wish that was the frame that we could get to uh, with a lot of this. The idea from a personal empowerment perspective, the idea of using something like SIFT is to make sure that when you enter the public arena and you try to make your case for a belief that I may not ag- agree with, right? I want you to make the best case possible. As, as a person teaching you, I want people to take you seriously. And that's much more important to me than winning any argument. And it's much more important to me than what you end up believing right? I, I want I want you, right, to have the tools to be taken seriously. I also want you to argue in an ethical way, right? I don't want you to use stuff that you know is a lie, and I don't want you to use stuff, that, you know, there's a bunch of, of different intersecting concerns. But primarily when we look at this, I think people want to be taken seriously. People want to be thought of as reasonable. And you can't do that if you just forward nonsense to people. People are not going to take you seriously. And it's very painful. It's very painful to people when they're not taken seriously. So, I mean, it's kind of come around full circle on that. I think one of the problems is people forward nonsense. Other people say, well, that's nonsense. And they don't necessarily understand why it's nonsense or understand how they could have known it was nonsense. And they get very upset. And then that develops this that develops this feeling that, oh, well, the fact-checking process is something that's sort of, it's a weapon being used against me. To, to, to push me out of the public sphere. But that's not the case. Like, we want you in the public sphere. And this book will actually show those people, like, how do you find and, and verify evidence that will cause people to take you seriously? And, and people will not be able to discard by simply saying, did you look up the web? Did you look up the Wikipedia article on that website? Because they're a really iffy organization, right? Yeah. So I, I have students and you guide us through this and I ask them to journal about the conspiracy theories. Have you or any person that you care about ever believed in a conspiracy theory? And I had a young woman who came through some years ago and was talking about the speaking of controversies here in the United States. We have listeners all over the world, but you probably have heard of our election here that was rather controversial. And she said, well, I, you know, I am one of those people. Some people think this is a, a conspiracy theory, but I know it's true because I know what I saw. And I chose not to 
interrupt her. And it's, we ha- she hasn't even gone through. This is the very beginning. We're just starting to think mm-hmm. about how we feel about these things. But talk a bit about context and specifically context for video, because I know that's something we should really, really be yeah. thinking about. And especially as, you know, I, I saw some boxes of ballots and they were moved. And could you could you talk us through how we think about about context in in especially video clips, but but not limited to that? Yeah, and so we have a whole chapter on video and a bunch of the examples on on video, uh, at least one of the prominent examples on video comes from the election. There's um, uh, another one from the initial invasion of Ukraine. And I, I think a third one's a conspiracy theory about uh, child trafficking, like a QAnon thing. And th- the thing that a lot of these share is is exactly what you're saying, that that someone has seen something and they know what they saw. And the thing they saw was real. It's videotape, right? It's security camera footage, right? And the again, this kind of comes to this idea of evidence, right? The, the, the idea that they have is, well, you're telling me this thing is not true and I saw this thing, right? But the, the real question, the reason why we ask, is this what I think it is rather than is this true, is because uh, very often it's not what they think it is, right? And so, for example, uh, there's a video that shows people in Georgia after after a number of workers have gone home, people in Georgia pulling out boxes of ballots from under a table and starting to count them. Uh, It's described as people pulling out suitcases of ballots or suitcases of unmarked ballots or pre-marked ballots, whatever it is. Or sometimes it's just described as people pulling out uh, cases of ballots, right? And it's just sort of left there. And the video is real, right? The video is real. But, you know, what is the context? The context is these are not suitcases. They're actually security boxes that were sealed up and then unsealed according to the process. The people are on a security camera, like from like, you know, I forget, like four different angles. It's certainly not something that's happened surreptitiously. Uh, there's a supervisor in there. Everything in there is according to the the normal process. These ballots in the suitcase that are being pulled out aren't some sort of secret, like additional ballots. They're ballots that they hadn't gotten into processing earlier in the day. They had initially thought that they would take a break. They were then told by the, I, I believe the 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 governor's office or the state office said, no, we want people to continue. We want the results as soon as possible. And so they restarted. And that's all it is, right? It's just a bunch of people restarting the count after being told to that they needed to count faster. But to a person, what, what a person tends to think is, look, I saw, I saw the video there. And the, one of the problems with our modern environment is because things aren't sort of checked in the moment, if you push on that and you say, well, okay, well, that was it. And they're like, well, what about this? Because there's, there's literally hundreds of these things that have piled up over time. And it turns out they're almost all or all miscontextualized. But to the person that lived it, it feels like experience. They watched it happen. But it's just that the context they had was was so was so different that they were left with this, this interpretation. And it's really hard. One of the things I'll, I'll just say is it's so much easier to dislodge that belief in that interpretation in the moment or even directly after it during that day than it is to dislodge it even a week later, right? Because at that point, it's already set. People have an emotion about that. And when you say it didn't happen, it feels like you're rejecting their trauma, their experience, right? 
And uh, so it's just really difficult to go back, go back and do that. All right. Last question before we get to the recommendations segment. It's an easy one. I'll just toss it in there. I say sarcastically. So artificial intelligence, this has certainly been spoke about a lot of how do we how do we navigate this? How do we handle this emerging and seemingly ever-changing uh, new set of technology? I shouldn't say new. I just I just got done uh, with a final work on my scholar in residence at the University of Michigan, Dearborn, this morning, and um, was reminded about you know in the fifties and the sixties the kind of stuff that was happening around artificial intelligence. But anyway, what feels new to so many of us, but is not new. Could you tell us a little bit about how we can rest a bit in using the skills that we may already know or may start to practice after reading your book? And I think having an example specific to artificial intelligence of how we might use those skills would be helpful yeah. to people. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yes, this sounds so self-serving. And so I apologize for that. But it, it really is true that what the the sort of dissemination of these newer artificial intelligence models means for this is, is that these skills become more important. And the reason why is this. It's really the same set of skills. The thing that we're doing in the book is we're trying to get people away from using plausibility as their metric, right? Does something like look plausible? Does it feel authoritative, right? And we're trying to get them to very quickly go and find out what other people think, find out where the thing came from. The example with the toilet paper, we're, we're trying to figure out, hey, if we go back to the patent office, can we actually find this in the patent office and not just on a poster on amazon.com, right? If we have the poster on amazon.com, but there's nothing in the patent office that doesn't look so good, right? So, when you think about AI, take take AI that is used to produce images, right? It can make, with some errors, but it can make kind of convincing images. And even if it's not making fully convincing images now, in the future, it will make more convincing images than it is now. Uh, so it's only going to get better. So how do you solve a problem? Like, is this actually a, a picture of Biden, Joe Biden, I don't know, hitting somebody with a golf club or something. I don't know. I feel like I'm defaming Joe Biden. But, uh, you know, is this is this a real picture, right? Well, the way that people tend to do that is they look at it, right? And they, they ask themselves some questions. They play again the Mikey game, right? The, the Mikey and the Pop Rocks game. They say, well, do I think Joe Biden would have done that? Or does that golf club look a little bit Photoshopped? Or, you know, and they go and they, they play this, this sort of game. But the real question is, like, who took this photo? Like, where was it taken and when was it taken? He's the president of the United States. If someone took this photo, right, there's a lot of people that know when that happened, where it was taken, and who was behind the camera, right? If I can't find that, I don't trust it. If, on the other hand, I go and I look and I see, oh, nope, actually, here he was at the golf course, and here's the photographer and so forth, then that's that's step one. And then if it turns out that when I look at the broader picture, Okay, maybe it was maybe it was real, but actually it's a weird angle and it looks like something's happened that's not. Again, I'm already, even if it's not AI, I'm already on the better track, right? Because I'm I'm dealing with the context of it, I'm dealing with the source of it, I'm dealing with the provenance. The big thing to remember with AI is is in a world where anything can seem authoritative, provenance matters more. Knowing where it came from is gonna matter a lot more than knowing whether it looks looks credible. Before Mike and I get to our recommendations, and we've got some good ones for you today, I'd like to take a moment to thank today's sponsor. 
and that is Text Expander. Text Expander is one of the first things that I install on any computer, and I consider to be an essential part of my computing life. How Text Expander works is you easily set up what they call snippets. These are short, easy to remember little snippets of text that you type it as soon as you finish typing, it will expand to either something that is longer so that you can type less and say more, or it'll expand into something that's harder for you to remember. Like for me, harder for me to remember my work phone number since I don't give it out or use it very often. So text expander, sometimes when I talk about text expander, I think people are going to think that With all the cool things you can do with it, it's hard to learn. It's very easy to learn. And you don't even really have to remember your snippets. We're actually using a collaborative team version of Text Expander now. And so sometimes we'll set up something and I just don't remember what the little snippet is to expand to that larger text. And I just type the keyboard shortcut to bring up a search bar and I can just search for whatever it is. And my my fingers are, it's kind of that muscle memory thing where it's just so easy for me to use and really allows me to expand my use of Text Expander even further. So head over to textexpander.com slash podcast. You can redeem 20% off your order and have a chance to check out what Text Expander is all about. Thanks once again, Text Expander, for sponsoring today's episode. This is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. I have three of them. First off. Oh, you have three. Okay. I have three. Okay. I'm going to go quick, though. All right. First, no. I, I, if it's not obvious to everyone listening as I gush over getting the chance to talk with Mike Caulfield again, I want to recommend Verified, How to Think Straight, Get Duped Less, and Make Better Decisions About What to Believe Online by Mike Caulfield and Sam Weinberg. This is a tremendous book. I couldn't wait to get my hands on it. And and it lived, it exceeded my expectations. It's wonderful. I'm going to recommend that you combine it if you've not already taken it with the SIFT three-hour mini course. And I'm going to link to both of those in the show notes as always, because there's something about if you have, as I did, a lack of confidence in yourself to be able to do this, you're going to quickly see this is all doable. This is all, this is a set of steps that any of us can do, and it's going to help you walk it through. You even can keep a journal, which is what Mike recommends as you go, and I found that to be a really helpful practice. I even decided to challenge myself, and I have a <laughs> YouTube channel that is practically non-existent, but I decided to go public with my learning. This is known as learning out loud, and sure, I, I'm sure I made some mistakes as I went, but it just felt good to put that little bit of accountability to, I say anyone can do this, and here I am, you know, Fumbling my way, fumbling my way through trying this, and I I do have more confidence today. But it's out of what and Mike. I don't know if you would ever remember this, but we exchanged when I first started using it with students. I went through it myself first, and then started using it with students. I was like, "This is like magic," and you're like, "Yes, it is magic." <laughs> I mean, it's really if you've not done it before, it really is kind of magic, and it brings a lot of hope and joy to me in my teaching. So, I want to recommend those two things. I almost didn't recommend this final thing because it is polarizing. And Mike, you had mentioned gun legislation and gun rights and that being a very polarizing issue. The reason I'm deciding to recommend this anyway is it's really Mike's fault. No, I'm kidding. But <laughs> Mike had mentioned something about really the that you want people to be able to make good arguments. And so I am sharing this because I think that this this author has made a good argument against the when gun violence happens 
that this is not a good time to talk about it. We need to, it's not not respectful to the people impacted. And I know him because he's a geeky podcaster and likes to use Mac computers and all this. His name is John Gruber. And the title of this article is The Aftermath of a Massacre is Always the Right Time to Push for Gun Legislation. And he talks about a recent, I mean, just pick a day, pick a week gun violence and how people say that's not the right time. And he puts that argument in other circumstances where, you know, when when he gives the example of September 11th and we didn't say, well, that wasn't the right time to talk about things then. And so it's definitely a if you have really strong feelings about gun violence, <laughs> um, it's definitely one of those. It's not a, this is not a middle of the road, both sides kind of a thing. I just found it a compelling argument and an important one for us to be pushing back on our lawmakers here in the United States and saying this is not normal and we absolutely can and should do better. So if that's not your thing, you're not going to want to click on that link, <laughs> as I mentioned, but I did want to share it. I, I, I just think when we are making these good arguments, it's, it's helpful to share them. So Mike, I'll pass it over to you for your recommendations. Yeah. So first, I'm going to recommend an entire field of study. So just a really small recommendation. But the the thing I've been getting into over the past couple of years is a field called argumentation theory. And very often, I, I, I find at least, sometimes we don't encounter disciplines that have a lot of the answers we're looking for, because we just don't know the search terms. We just don't know the name of the thing. And uh, one of the things I found is that uh, this this field of argumentation theory, which is uh, how do people in ordinary life uh, come to agreement on what is reasonable and what is not, right? It's, it's at the intersection of rhetoric and uh, epistemology. It's, it's, it's a kind of a combination of those. And I've just found that the field, to me, has had such illuminating insights uh, on all of this. If you want a, a book that sort of kicked it all off, uh, there's a book by a guy named Stephen Toulmin uh, from 1958 called The Uses of Argument. But also, just the world is your oyster if you if you type in argumentation theory and sort of browse the way that people in this discipline approach approach this issue. It's, it's just fascinating to me because I think it, I think it, it just it just made so many things clear to me that that I think we had discovered in our educational work, but we hadn't fully fully theorized. So that, that's pretty deep and heavy. I, I think the second thing I would uh, recommend is a video game. I got this video game called Starfield. I don't know if other anybody here uh, knows what that is, but you know it's it's this sort of open universe game where you. I I can't explain. It sounds video games all sound so dumb when you talk about them, <laughs> but it's an open universe game where you go and you build your little moon bases and upgrade your ship and sort of build your little space empire. And it's got like a thousand different planets in it. It's just a gigantic game. And what I found at least is that in these times, sometimes I need, I'm a very goal-driven person. And so it's hard for me to detach from work because work has goals. I like I like goals. I like making progress on goals. And so I try to relax, but I, I I end up I end up gravitating back towards some form of work. And what I found, at least with this game, Starfield, and maybe, I mean, other people, if other people, who knows, maybe it's Minecraft or something. I found that this is good because I I, I can get I can get addicted to the the in-game goals of of building my little space empire. And it can keep me away from work, which I which I do need a a break from. Um yeah, it's, apart from that, I, I, sh- I feel like I should have had three recommendations here, but I, I'm, it feels incomplete. But apart from that, I, I think I'm just going to take a point of privilege, and I'm just going to I'm just going to recommend 
the book. Uh, Verified is a book that Sam and I first conceptualized, first talked about writing back in, oh, geez, early 2018. And the idea of the book was always that there's a whole bunch of books there that talk about, here's the big problem with misinformation. And then there's other books that are, are very thick textbooky things that are like information literacy, and you got a chapter or two on this thing. And we just wanted to make a small book that had the most, just had all the most important stuff in it, you know? Uh, and so, so yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to end with recommending the book, but it, it took uh, from 2018 to now to get a publisher to really see our vision of that book. We're so thankful that the University of Chicago saw what, what we wanted to do and supported it. So I just, I'm going to encourage you. Sorry, I'm going to encourage you to pick it up. I There's absolutely nothing to apologize for. It's a wonderful book. And there's so many good examples in there. I mean, it really is, it crosses over so many contexts of our lives and things that we're interested in. And so I could, I absolutely think there's nothing to apologize for. And Mike, it's such a pleasure to get to talk to you again. Thanks for coming back on Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. Thanks once again to Mike Caulfield for joining me for today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. Today's episode was produced by me, Bonnie Stahoviak. It was edited by the ever-talented Andrew Kroger. Podcast production support was provided by the amazing Sierra Priest. If you've yet to sign up for the weekly emails that come out from Teaching in Higher Ed, head over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe You'll receive the most recent episodes, show notes, as well as some other resources and goodies that don't show up in the regular show notes. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.